You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with director-slash-author-slash-all-kinds-of-good-stuff, John Badham. He is back with a new version of his book on directing. I'll also link to the interview that we did about the first edition over at the website, www.projectionboothpodcast.com. Be sure to check it out. It was great talking to Mr. Badham again. It was a real pleasure revisiting the book last night, I have to tell you. Oh, good. Oh, well, thank you. I liked it the first time around, and it's got even more to offer this time, and and quite a star-studded guest cast you have in there as well. A lot of wonderful people are very generous in sharing their insights and and stuff. And and it makes me feel better that it's not all dependent on me making mistakes, saying false things. So tell me, why did you decide to go back to the book? What brought about the second edition? I wanted to write a lot about the change in, in the whole motion picture and television business as the wall between the two businesses has evaporated and gone further than the Berlin Wall coming down, you know, whereas there used to be this wall between the two of them. And now the things flow back and forth and, and we, you know, we're seeing first release films on, on Amazon and Netflix and other places that we never would have seen before. The Motion Picture Academy has had to bow to this by saying films can be considered for Academy Awards even if they haven't been released in Los Angeles for a week by the end of the year. I mean, this is a, that's a huge change for them to acknowledge. So as it affects directors, more and more directors are, you know, working in streaming media, and there is a whole different culture that has, has grown up there over the years of television and, and now into the various streaming formats. Where, where the director is really closer to being a, a, a gun for hire. And as a gun for hire, uh, is sliding down the food chain instead of being maybe number one, though how many of those the Spielbergs or Christopher Nolans are there in the world and being one, two or three in, in that hierarchy or in, in the case of our television where you're number 14, 15, or God forbid, even worse, down the line. You're kind of like in a Kafka novel where there are people you answer to, but people that they answer to and the people that those people answer to and goes up and finally vanishes in the ether somewhere. I mean, somebody's making the final decision on on these, but it's hardly ever the director. So you have to learn how to survive in this different kind of culture so that you can keep on making films or working in streaming television. If you insist on being stubborn, you know, you may find yourself out of a career. So that's the the big new section of, of the book. It's uh, section four and dealing with, you know, the realities of it. Because you can sniff and huff and get all puffy about it. But at the end of the day, you know, you have to watch out for, A, your own integrity as a, as a as a director as a creative person but your ability to to do that and to create things and 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 so on so how do you how do you fit into this kind of restrictive environment 
how was that for you? Because you've been working in television now for, what, about 20 years. I know you did some TV movies and then uh, just you started in series in, I want to say, early 2000s. How was that adjustment for you to go from top dog, I'm running the show, to I'm adopting to the style of the show? That was a tough adjustment. You know, uh, even even kind of knowing some of what I some of what I know now, just my I had to really regear my brain to be much more open to what the producers were wanting in the products that they own, that they created, and that they are trying to maintain. And and I'm there to help them do the best that I can maintain their brand keep it going, but somehow keep it fresh. So you're not completely uh, a chef at McDonald's that has to turn out that Big Mac the same way every time. They want fresh ideas, but they'll decide what fresh ideas are the ones that they'll use and and which ones will be cast away. I've learned, like a lot of old songwriters in the past, or even Hitchcock, when an idea gets rejected, I just stick it in the trunk and it'll it'll come back. It's all right. They're just we're just talking about ideas here. We're not curing cancer. I mentioned before the guest stars that you have in the book, and how did that come about? Because you have so many luminaries adding their voices to uh, your book. Actually, thank goodness, pretty easy. Uh, to call them up and say, "Can I come and talk to you at lunch for for an hour about how you like to work with actors or how how you find." you know, working in, in, in television is to get Tommy Schlamme or uh, Steven Soderbergh or Paris Barclay, you know, guys to do that. They're very happy to share. We sometimes think of this as directing as some kind of black art, but somehow directors have always seemed to be very willing to share and not keep their, their knowledge and techniques down because it, it's always going to be difficult. Just telling somebody your secrets doesn't mean that they're going to suddenly come out and run you over in the road. It's still bloody difficult. The book, it's almost like a textbook feel to it, especially the, you know, we're going to cover this and this is what you should have learned by this time when we're done with the chapter. I think this happened on, on my first book, I'll Be in My Trailer, when I was just starting teaching at, at Chapman, and I never meant for it to be a textbook. But just my students in reading over early chapters were saying, can you put a summary at the end? Because there's so many ideas in here. And say, oh, sure, I can do that. All right. Well, that's helpful. So, you know, covering covering the main points. And I, th- I think it is helpful and easy easy to do. So uh, so we do teach it at uh, at Chapman and, and lots of other places that use use the book in their in their classes and I think everybody likes it because it doesn't feel like you know a standard textbook but it's got just enough little guideposts in there to make it to make it useful so not only do you have the book coming out or is out now available for folks but you also just within the last I think month or so a blu-ray of the hard way came out and it seems impossible to me that that film is Coming on 30 years old now. Oh, my Lord. I know. On the cover of People magazine this week, I looked at it and saw, oh, my God, it's Michael J. Fox 30 years later, you know, still with that 
very boyish look, but definitely 30 years older. All the things that he's had to fight through and endure and try to survive, uh, you know, with his Parkinson's. Yeah, it's, it, it is quite something. I, I mean, thank God he's he's endured and survived. I've I've lost a couple of friends to Parkinson's, and uh, they couldn't weather the storm. And and so when you see somebody that's lasted, had it for as many years as he has, you think of thank God and whatever he's doing, it's it's keeping him going. You were kind of a specialist in that buddy cop comedy action film for a while there between this and Stakeout and another Stakeout. You were really in the zone with those. I know. <laughs> it seems like you go through stages. You know, I had my tech stage with Blue Thunder, followed by War Games, followed by Short Circuit, and then suddenly get in and get into buddy comedies without realizing that I'm doing that. I loved the script of Stakeout when, when I read it, and it just kind of developed as that. I mean, there was never a point where we said, we're making a buddy comedy. It, it just seemed to develop that way. And, and uh, the same with The Hard Way. You know, this was a buddy comedy where they're not buddies. They're anti-buddies, anti and, and that's the, the humor of it. If you've done one that's, that's kind of serious, there's a lot of humor in, in Stakeout, it's always nice to go and, and kind of try and send up the genre, as, as we did with Short Circuit, which kind of sending up the tech genre. It was amazing to go back. I, I just rewatched The Hard Way a few months ago. I um, had an opportunity to speak with Daniel Pine. and Oh, nice. Going back and rewatching it, and I'm just like, everybody is somebody in this. Even down to, like, Kathleen and Jimmy showing up and, and Delroy Lindo and just all of these faces that would become so much more well-known throughout the 90s and into the 2000s. And re-looking at it recently... Lewis Black shows up as a big character in one scene. And you go, Lewis Black? Oh, my God, I didn't even know what I had there with me. Oh, my God, one of my favorite comedians. And and there he is right, right at the beginning. Well, our brilliant casting director, she knew all the, you know, the the great actors in, in New York. And, and they were just about all new to me the, the little the little girl in there uh who's 10 years old who's become such a big a big star Christina Ricci I mean she was wonderful at you know 10 11 years old and then to watch her grow up and go through so many stages and still be working and 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 really good and and very you know very popular I I think, you know, there's something that's, that you have to admire and respect about her talent. And, you know, it's not just another pretty face. How did uh, Penny Marshall get involved with it? Same thing. Same thing. Just the casting director saying, what if, What about Penny Marshall? And I go, oh, Penny Marshall isn't going to want to do that. Well, what about if I give her a call? Oh, okay. Oh, my God, she's going to do it? Oh, how fabulous. Yeah, it was surprising because I think by that time she was already really into her directing career. I want to say that um, uh, the League of Their Own was right around the same time. Yes, it was. And, well, some nice things about acting jobs like this, I think we only had her for three or four days uh, in, in, in the whole movie. Well, you can, you can be directing a movie as long as you're not actively shooting. You could go off and 
you know, do a gig like that, you know, with with all of her her acting experience in Laverne and Shirley, you know, it's it's a fun thing to be able to do and drop in. Plus, you know, acting with Michael is a real treat. You know, the two the two of them together, you know, their scenes are are wonderfully funny because they're just so so playful, the both of them. Yeah, I love that chemistry, and I do really appreciate just that oil and water of Fox and Woods. They just seem like they come from different planets. The treat is just standing outside the two of them, watching them, is that they're so kind of opposite in their personalities that you felt like each one was fighting to maintain their space on the screen, because if they weren't careful, they were going to be outacted by the other actor. And Jimmy is absolutely the most shameless scene thief in the in the history of motion pictures. Even Donald Pleasance couldn't come up to what Jimmy could come up to. So I just I just watch him just start laughing in the middle of scenes when you go to his reactions because they're they're so big and so outrageous, but good too. It's a miracle that, you know, it didn't completely take a scene away from you know, from Michael. And I couldn't get over just how manic Stephen Lang was. He was just incredible as the party crasher. Wonderful, wonderful guy. You know, such a good such a good actor. I had seen him on Broadway in a few good men playing the Jack Nicholson role. Uh, Stephen originated that role on on Broadway. And so it was a fun stretch for him. And he <laughs> he used to make Jimmy Woods crazy because some people when you're up against a, a terrific actor like that will get very intimidated and be suddenly all super respectful well not steven <laughs> he just he just call him on on his on his antics as as jimmy is trying to steal a close up from him or something something like that i was always curious was there ever any talk of a sequel to that film never if it had done better at the box office it would have because uh, you know i think the studio seemed to like it but Maybe we didn't cast it right. We cast it right so it played well, but did we cast it right for box office? I don't know. I mean, at one point, Jimmy Wood's part was going to be played by Gene Hackman, and that was when we had Kevin Klein uh, signed to play Michael J. Fox's part. That was going in that direction, and then Kevin got in, it was involved in a, in a play or something, and, well, he dropped out. And we found Michael right away. And, and Gene Hackman's reaction was, I'm like his grandfather. I, I, I don't, you know, the age balance was, was, was so different, you know, that, that Hackman just couldn't see his way to it. So my partner, uh, Rob Cohen said, what about Jimmy Woods? You know, okay. All right. That's terrific. Yeah. I always thought for sure that there would, should have been a sequel set on the opposite coast, where now Woods is the fish out of water. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, great idea. Well, you remember one of the last movies that Don Siegel made with with Clint Eastwood was called Coogan's Bluff. And then and then that became that became a television series for several years with De- with Dennis Weaver uh called McLeod. You know, that that worked great. Yeah, so th- yeah, this is a similar kind of idea. And Coogan's Bluff was was, you know, a pretty respectable hit at the time and and Eastwood certainly uh that way. 
when when Glenn Larson came up with 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 McLeod, everybody's going, "Oh, great! We got Dennis Weaver too. Terrific." I would ask you how it was dealing with a big personality like Woods, or I'm sure, like in Drop Zone, dealing with Wesley Snipes. But I know you've already written so much about it. Well, they're different. They're very different personalities. Those two guys, and one of the first things you learn as a director is that every actor has to be, you know, treated differently based on what you find out about their personality and their working habits. With Jimmy, there's there's this outrageousness of his behavior all the time where where he believes, and probably quite rightly so, that he's not only smarter than you are, he's probably smarter than everybody else in the room, maybe even put together. I mean, if I if I remember my biography correctly, he was, you know, a, a graduate of MIT. And, and and he seemed to approach life and acting as like a like a big game and and was always having always having fun about about it and Wesley was uh, you know coming at it from a much more uh, serious serious approach you know had a, had a different different outlook so you had to deal with him on a much more serious level i i just don't remember him ever joking or playing around whereas with jimmy i could call him on any of his silliness and and he go okay you got me all right (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah fine you've worked with some just amazing stunts thinking of like the end of the hard way or drop zone or i mean you even made a tv movie of evil knievel it's got to be such a, a different thing to put yourself in that mindset to be directing those action scenes. It is. You have to plan those out really carefully and and this is where storyboarding is really helpful to try to carefully storyboard and line out so you know exactly what you need. So there's a lot of kind of following the pre-planned plan in terms of the shots, but of course you have to remember that there's acting involved too. And, and you, you want, you want to know what characters are thinking during these, these action scenes. So it's, it's not just shoot the shots in the storyboard. It's, you know, let's, let's make sure that the actors are bringing their A game to the, to the scenes and we know what they're feeling and when they're in jeopardy and when they're, they're trying to get out of jeopardy and, you know, all, all the things that you want to happen in, in an action scene beyond just things exploding or flying through the air. So I know John Badamon directing the second edition came out, I want to say, early September. So you probably had that turned in maybe well before COVID even locked us down. Is that true? I think so. I, th- I think by by the first of the year, I had I had uh, given given them a draft, and then it always takes about that long for it to you know, go through all the steps. So how has uh, COVID affected you? What have you been up to? Well, thank God I have a virtually a full-time job as a, as a professor at, uh, at Chapman's Dodge College, teaching there two days a week. And the, and, the, and the addition of COVID has just made it even more difficult because we're teaching everything virtually. And with teaching, directing virtually is, you know, has been... Uh, quite a challenge for the students and for me. So I've been really busy, not had much sitting around. In fact, I'm probably busy seven days a week trying to keep up with 
avalanche of things that I that I need to do to teach the three classes that I teach. But you're able to stay at home, stay safe, all those things? That's good, yes. When they uh, suggested bringing, you know, bringing students, students back, you, you had the option of, of not coming back into uh, in-person classes. And, and it was just, just wiser for me to teach virtually until, until we feel like we're in a safer place. I hope you stay safe. I hope uh, everything goes well. And I hope that people pick up uh, John Batam on directing the second edition because it is fantastic. Oh, thank you, Mike. I'm so glad that you you like it. It's uh, it was fun to write, fun to compile from all of my all of my director friends, and uh, and hope it helps anybody anybody who's interested in directing. Thank you so much. This was great. Great. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mike. It's great to talk to you again. Maybe we don't have to wait six years if I go and think up something else that's publishable. We can talk again. Yeah.